Hello everyone, I'm going to start this way. So, this is written by Amy Shaw, this is Everyday Feminism. And Amy Shaw is a contributing writer for Everyday Feminism. She's a recent graduate from Washington College where she studied international studies and history is currently working in Missoula, Montana. Amy loves spending time outside listening to music and trying new vegetarian recipes. So this was July 28, 2012. Eight things your LGBTQIA friend wants you to know when they come out to you. It's a pivotal moment. Your friend tells you they're LGBTQIA+. Gender and sexual diversity, if you will. They've just exposed a vulnerable part of themselves and now they're waiting to see how you react. They're waiting to see if you're going to judge them, get uncomfortable, or support them in coming out. Most importantly, they're waiting to see if you're still their friend. If you're still their true friend. So what you say and don't say right after that, so what you say and don't say right after they come out to you is important and we know you don't need to say the wrong thing but there's a good chance you might even LGBTQI plus friendly friends still mess it up sometimes even LGBTQI plus friendly gender and sexual diversity friendly true friends still mess it up sometimes even people who are completely accepting of homosexuality lesbianism, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness, uh, intersex, hermaphrodite, uh, two-spirit, pansexuality, and so on and so forth, can still make coming out more difficult than necessary. What is, what is unfortunate that LGBTQI plus friendly, gender and sexual, diversity friendly, true friends often don't even realize that they have made it more difficult for their friend who's risking a lot by coming out. The main way supportive friends end up being accidentally unsupportive is when they focus on themselves, not their newly out friend. To help make sure you show your support in a way that actually feels supportive to them, we've created a list of do's and don'ts in collaboration with two self-identified gay individuals, Chester and Octavian. What to do if your friend comes out? Your first reaction may be, yup, saw that coming. Wow, I never would have guessed. Or, so how do you have sex? But before you say anything, Remember that coming out is about them taking a brave step forward. Like any friend dealing with something difficult, be there for them. Let them come out to you. Even if it's painfully obvious LGBTQIA+, it's their choice to come out to you. Remember that though you may be ready to hear it, they may not be ready to say it. And what, what painfully obvious doesn't mean that you hate what you know. It just means that you're concerned that the heteronormative, heterosexist, um, phobic towards 
LGBTQIA plus gender sex diversity global society we live in, you're afraid of the hate crimes that could happen to your friend potentially. You know, even though there's no guarantee they'll happen, it's the thought that you have hateful people out here. So that's a painfully obvious reason. Everyone deserves the right to come out in their own and in their own time. Don't interrupt them. They're admitting to something that they've internally struggled with and kept hidden from others for some time. It's important to keep the focus on them rather than make it about you and how you feel about it. Let them know nothing has changed. What they've just told you is like telling you their astrological sign is Libra. It doesn't change who they are as a person. They're still the same person they were when you became their friend. They're just LGBTQIA+, you're just straight or straight cisgender or straight or non-cisgender. Just because somebody is straight, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will automatically identify to themselves and other, other people as cisgender. So you have to keep that in mind because you can be straight and transgender. Share that you support LGBTQIA plus rights, a good and gender and sexual diversity rights. I try to say them both at the same time. It's something I'm teaching myself and working on. And so far, I'm doing an excellent job. A good and non-inclusive way to make it easier for your potentially LGBTQI plus gender sexual diversity friend to come out is to share your thoughts on homosexuality, uh, lesbianism, bisexuality, queerness, transgenderism, intersex, hermaphrodite, two-spirit, um, pansexuality, so on and so forth. You can casually mention that you support marriage equality, share LGBTQI plus rights image on Facebook or any other social media platform if you're choosing, or ask them if they want to join you at the LGBTQI plus gender sexual diversity pride celebrations in DC and wherever else, and wherever else that you reside in. This supports them without targeting them directly. What not to do if your friend comes out? Don't tell your other friends. Sometimes when you find out a friend is LGBTQI plus or gender sexually diverse, you want to tell your other friends who are LGBTQI plus gender sexual diversity friendly. But taking away an individual's ability to decide whether or not to come out to certain people can be devastating and feel like you stole their new beginning. No matter how well you think your other friends will take the news, it's still not your right to tell them. Don't assume to know everything about being LGBTQIA plus gender sexually diverse. It takes time for anyone to explore and understand their own sexuality, sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex characteristics. Additionally, since we live in a dominantly, in a dominantly, in a societal way, straight cisgender world, meaning heteronormativity, they'll need to time they'll need to, to time they'll need time to learn about the different communities and cultures in the LGBTQI plus gender and sex diversity world. They're going to go through a learning process and some of it may be easy and welcome while other parts may be confusing and difficult for them. The LGBTQI plus friend could use your support during this process and probably doesn't want to be your go-to person for all your questions about homosexuality, um, lesbianism, queerness, bisexuality, intersex, hermaphrodite, transgenderism, two-spirit, pansexuality, so on and so forth. Don't question if they're really LGBTQI plus or not. 
sometimes LGBTQI plus people, you know, gender, sexual diversity, have relationships with people of, I have trouble saying we're opposite sex. I would say have relationships with people who are not self-identified as same sex, but they self-identify as the opposite sex, kind of like put it, before they come out as a way to fit into our dominant, straight, cisgender, heteronormative world. Sometimes they'll do afterwards too, if they're bisexual for, for a self-identified example, or just exploring as another self-identified example. Sexuality, gender, sex characteristics can be a fluid, can be fluid things for some. When I say fluid things, I'm not being disrespectful and saying, can be, as the best way to say this, fluid realities. There you go, so I'm saying things with their reality to um, fully humanize the persons. Okay, sexuality and gender can be fluid realities for some and hard and fast rule realities for others. Either way, let your friend determine how they identify their own sexual orientation and gender and sex characteristics and don't think you know better than they do. In fact, sex characteristics can be fluid realities too for some people. Don't launch into the dangers of being out. Even if you have good intentions, don't attempt to warn them for their own safety. Expressing fear around them coming out isn't, is not helpful. They already know they're risky involved and have probably played through different scenarios in your head many times. What's more important is telling them you'll be there for them if they face homophobia, lesbophobia, biphobia, transphobia, queerphobia, any other kind of gender and sexually diverse focus. If you remember nothing else, remember it's their courageous moment when your LGBTQI plus gender and sexually diverse friend shares with you something that some people may reject, condemn, or physically attack them for, or try to physically stop them from breathing for. Be a friend to them as you would for any friend who is sharing something difficult with you. Let them know you're still their friend no matter what their sexual orientation might be and that you'll stand by them when they face any kind of phobia related to gender and sexual diversity. Why? Because that's what a true friend does. There are just some ways you can be supportive than many others. What are some ways, what are some other ways you support LGBTQ plus friends, right? This article was written in collaboration with two gay individuals, Chess and Octavian. Their names were changed to protect their privacy. We thank them for helping us make sure this article would resonate with the experience of many LGBTQ plus people. So the question is, what are some other ways you support LGBTQ plus friends? That's a conversation you have to have with yourself and your true friend. Um, and that's a conversation I have with myself and my true friends because I'm an LGBTQ plus friend. And, um... I want to mention something, and um, I'll get back to the LGBTQ plus stuff, but let me get all the religion stuff out so I can purely um, be free, okay? This is for my freedom. This is for freedom for people like me. Four good reasons not to read the Bible literally, posted by DJL on June 20, 2012 in Bible. I've gotten a number of questions of late about the search of a literal way of reading the Bible. It's that way of reading the Bible that was maybe best summed up in the bumper sticker. God said it, I believe God said it. Which is something I don't subscribe to, by the way. This is me sharing my personal opinion. 
most of us, it seems, have at least one friend or family member who reads the Bible this way, and though we may covet their confidence, we often don't feel like that way of reading the Bible fits, in quotations, with us or works, in quotations, for us. I use quotation marks to name these feelings because it's often hard to describe what doesn't seem accurate or faithful about reading the Bible literally. Sometimes it just feels like we need to check our brains with the thought of rejecting all we know of evolution in the age of Earth, perhaps we're believing the story of Joshua stopping the sun in his tracks. Other times the result of such interpretation seems so harsh or judgmental that we just can't square the mercy of Jesus with such interpretation. But apart from these strong and also somewhat vague objections, we aren't quite sure why in our congregation we read the Bible literally, more importantly what the alternative is. addressing this, I'm going to offer in this post offer four reasons not to read the Bible literally. Um, so for good reasons, so four good reasons not to read the Bible literally. One, nowhere does the Bible claim to be an error. That's right, at no place in its more than 30,000 verses does the Bible claim that it's factually accurate in terms of history, science, geography, and all other matters, the technical definition of inerrancy. Quote unquote, inerrant itself is not a word found in the Bible, even known to Christian theologians for most of history. Rather, the word was coined in the middle of the 19th century as a defensive countermeasure to the increased popularity of reading the Bible as one would other historical documents and the discovery of manifold internal inconsistencies and external inaccuracies. The signature verse most literally points to is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But one can confess that scripture is inspired by God without resorting to claims that it contains no factual errors. One more time. But one can confess that scripture is inspired by God without resorting to claims that it contains no factual errors. We normally use the language of inspiration in just this way, describing a painting and performance of a Bach, Bach symphony or even a good lecture as inspired. What binds the various and sundry texts found in the Bible together may be precise that they are all inspired by the ultimate experience of the living God. There is no hint that the authors of the Bible imagined that what they were writing was somehow supernaturally guaranteed to be factually accurate. Rather, biblical authors wrote in order to be persuasive, hoping that by reading their witness, you could come to believe as they did. See John chapter 20, verses 30-31. Second, reading the Bible literally distorts its witness. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus drives money changers out of the Jerusalem temple in the days immediately preceding his crucifixion. In the Gospel of John, he does this near the beginning of his ministry, two years before his death. Similarly, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the day Jesus crucified his name is the Passover, while in John, it is the day of preparation. That is the day before Passover. Inconsistencies like this are part of what undermines claims to inerrancy of not just the Gospels, but also many other books in the Bible. But the primary intention of the biblical authors is not to record history in the post-enlightenment sense we take for granted today, but instead to confess faith, then these differences are not troubling inconsistencies to be reconciled, rather helpful clues to understanding the confession of the author. So rather than acts who got it right, we might instead wonder why John described these events differently than the other evangelists. As it turns out, both of these examples stem from John's theological claim that Jesus knew Passover land. 
For this reason, once he begins his ministry, there's no need for temple sacrifice. He is crucified on the same day. Indeed, at the exact hour at which the Passover lambs are sacrificed on the day of preparation. You can attempt to reconcile these and other discrepancies with biblical witness, of course, and literalists have published books almost as long as the Bible attempting to do just that. In the case of the different time frames and the cleansing of the Bible, for instance, one might suggest that Jesus did this, this twice, once at, once at the beginning of his mission, then again for good measure, two years later, but far from, quote-unquote, rescuing the gospel, such efforts distort their distinct confession of faith by rendering accounts of Jesus' life that none of the canonical accounts offers. Three, most Christians across history have not read the Bible literally. We tend to think of anything that is labeled quote-unquote conservative as being older and more traditional. Oddly enough, however, the adoption of an heresy that literally aims to conserve is only about a century and a half old. Not only did many of the Christian church's brightest theologians not subscribe to anything like an heresy, Many adamantly oppose such a notion. St. Augustine, rarely described as liberal, lived for many years at the margins of the church. An impediment to his conversation was precisely the notion that Christians took literally stories like that of Jonah spending three days in the belly of a whale. It was not until Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, introduced Augustine to allegorical interpretation, that is, that stories can point metaphorically to spiritual realities rather than historical facts that Augustine could contemplate taking the Bible and those who read it seriously. Pause. I look, I read stories of spiritual, of spiritual realities metaphorically, allegorically, metaphysically, and figuratively. And I read them as parables and fables you know, in spiritual truth rather than looking at them as historical facts. And I do not insert my own prejudices and my own bigotries towards the religious texts. Uh, lots of literalists and those who read the Bible literally, those who tend to have conservative leanings of any religious texts, they tend to insert their own bigotries and prejudices towards religious texts. So I read the Bible and other religious texts seriously, while literalists, those who have conservative leadings and those who are um, reading the Bible literally tend to not read the Bible seriously as people like me. Um, traditionalists tend to um, limit the wisdom in religious texts, while people like me who are figuratives, we are open to endless wisdom that any story offers, even if we read it so many times. And the wisdom is not to make us theists or believers or anything like that. It's to, it's so we can, well, if that does happen for some of us, that's fine. But for a lot of us, it's to, to be, to, to enhance our sensitivity to self, to others, and to all creation. Even though theism is a 
question mark and believing is a question mark and those are courageous question marks of our lives so that's how it works for people like me the point is that pre-modern christians approach the bible with the same historically conscious skepticism the bible's factual and scientific veracity that modern interpreters possess earlier christians among almost everyone else who lived prior to the event of modernity simply didn't imagine that for something to be true it had to be factually accurate a concern only advanced after the enlightenment hence four gospels that diverged at different points far from troubling earlier christians was instead seen as a faithful and fitting recognition that god's truth as revealed in jesus was too large to be contained only by one perspective flattening the biblical witness to conform to a reductionist understanding of truth only limits the power of scripture as Karl Barth, arguably the 20th century's greatest theologian, once said, I take the Bible too seriously to read it literally. That's how I feel. This is me talking again. That's how I feel about all religious texts. Four. Reading the Bible literally undermines a chief confession of the Bible about God. Read the Bible even for a little while, and you'll soon realize that most of the major characters are, shall we say, less than ideal. Abraham passed his wife off as his sister twice in order to save his skin. Moses is a murderer. Peter denies Jesus three times. I can't say, well, David slept sleep around with some women, but it comes back she, but he raped her. Whatever their accomplishments, most of the heroes of the faith and quotations are complicated persons with feet of clay. And that's the point. God, God of the Bible directly uses the ordinary people to accomplish ordinary things. Now, I can understand why that can be offensive to a people, to families who've been victimized by murder and um, rape and the type of sleep room that they did all the other women. I can see how reckless sexuality can hurt a lot of families and so they may not like the whole that that's you can't say ordinary people comes to that these are extraordinarily evil people see I, my compassion and empathy is shown so i can't apply the ordinary people to moses and, and david i just can't peter yes moses and david no why then treat the bible itself differently rather than imagine that the bible is also written by ordinary fallible people and there, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm still being sensitive to people when it comes to the murder, the rape, the reckless sexuality I talked about. So when I say ordinary Bible, I'm not talking about most things. Okay. Why well, then treat the Bible itself differently? Rather than imagine the Bible is also written by ordinary Bible people, inheritance have made the Bible an otherworldly supernatural document that runs contrary to the biblical affirmation that God chooses ordinary vessels, jars of clay. The Apostle Paul calls them to bear an extraordinary message. Now I can understand why people say, well, the Apostle Paul, I just don't like him. You know, because, you know, he was a killer and he killed a lot of people. So I can understand how families victimized by murder could look at Paul's side eye. So, you know, people like Moses, David, and Apostle Paul are extremely infallible people. <laughs> They're not average, ordinary Bible people, okay? They are extremely Bible people, and their fallibility is extraordinary in of itself, okay? In fact, literalists unwittingly ascribe to the Bible the status of being fully human and fully divine that is normally reserved only for Jesus. That is called, that, you know what that word is called? 
let's be educated some more. Because I have educated educate listeners, and I don't believe in dumbing down my listeners, because that is, quite frankly, insulting. So let's talk about something that a lot of faith-based people don't want to hear. So what I just read to you, right? Okay. In fact, literalists unwittingly ascribe to the Bible the status of being fully human, fully divine quotations that is normally their only for Jesus. I read that again because literalists are subjugating themselves to the sin of bibliolatry. Bibliolatry from the Greek biblion book in the suffix latria worship. Book worship is the it, bibliology is the worship of a book, idolatry is homage to a book, or the deifying of a book. It is a form of idolatry. The sacred texts of some religions disallow icon worship, but over time, the texts themselves are treated as sacred the way idols are. Believers may end up effectively worshiping the book. Bibliology extends claims of inerrancy, hence perfection to the text, precluding theological innovation, evolving development, or progress. Bibliology can lead to revivalism, this allows free probation, can lead to persecution of unpopular doctrines. Historically, Christianity has never endorsed worship of the Bible, reserving worship for God. Some Christians believe that biblical authority derives from God as an inspiration of the text, not from the text itself. The term bi- bibliology does not refer to recognized belief, but theological discussion leads to where pejoratively labeling the perceived practices of opponents. Opponents may apply the term bibliology to groups such as Protestants or of a fundamentalist and evangelical factors, such as the King James only movement to espouse biblical inerrancy in a solo scriptor approach, scripture as the only divine authority. So, literalists are sinning by practicing and doing the sin of bibliolatry. So rather than read the Bible literally, so rather than read the Bible literally because of our own post-enlightenment concerns about truth and its relationship to historical factual veracity, we need instead to embrace the scripture as possessing and confessing a bigger kind of truth, the kind of truth that can actually change your life if it's the right kind of book for you that you think is capable of changing your life. So That is something that was written by David Luce, senior pastor, Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A, a pastor wrote that, okay? I think about how I was taught the sin of Bibliology. Biblical inerrancy, biblical infallibility are forms of bibliology that I don't practice. So, let's talk some more. I'm, get, I'm just being truthful about some things. When I started to read Bible scholarship, I, this is medium.com. 
I started to read Bible scholarship. I realized that I'd be seeing a different Jesus than what I heard about in church. In a strict textual analysis, it doesn't even seem to be the same character after a while. I realized I like this one better. It's written by Jonathan Poetic. One, Jesus is funny. Growing up, I guess I had an image of Jesus from paintings or stained glass windows. Isn't he distant, emaciated, and pain? But here, but there he is in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, full of joy. The word Abgalio, Abgal, Abgalio, notes Robert H. Mouse, is a very strong word depicting unrestrained joy. The pacing and tone of his speech seem to have been badly misled. Jesus jokes. He tells one in Luke chapter 14, verse 14 to 24, that is a bit sexual. The setup is three guys get invited to a party. All three say they can't come. Carl, Han, in a wicked sense of humor, maps out the connections. The first declines because he has acquired land and needs to try it out. The second has acquired oxen and needs to try them out. The third because he has acquired a wife and needs to decline the invitation. The pregnant pause allows listeners to observe the sexual implications of the decline invitation. The unspoken, I must go and try her out. Two, Jesus is very emotional. In church, we have a favorite verse to memorize, Jesus wept. That is quite a clue to Jesus experiencing waves of intense feelings. We see it a lot. He's sorrowful, surprised, he mourns, weeps, is in conflict and agony, he loves. Jesus is profoundly marked by all that is human, by all human emotions, notes Andriana Destro. I was most surprised by the anger of Jesus, even if it was right there. He looked around them in anger, says Mark chapter 3, verse 5, and Mark chapter 10, verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And there were more examples too, concealed by translations, tidying up the messy Messiah. This is not the Jesus one we expect to find. Bart Norman says in paper, Mark chapter 1, verse 41. The usual translation of this verse says Jesus was moved with pity. Then I is bold to say Jesus was indignant. In other words, Jesus was pissed off. The word is actually angry. It says Jesus was angry. Three, Jesus is gender bending, sexy. Growing up, I thought the Messiah came off masculine and not too cute. A regular guy was the idea. Isn't that how men were supposed to be? The Gospels don't describe Jesus' body, but the Old Testament prophet Isaiah does say the Messiah will have no form, no comeliness, no beauty. Chapter 15, verse 2. That might refer to him having little social importance. Joan E. Taylor explains that what did Jesus look like in published in 2008. Early Christians understood Jesus to be Smoking hot. Cited the Messianic Psalm, chapter 45, a long praise of the beautiful man, youthful in beauty you are, beyond the sons of men, grace was poured on your lips. But this is a Bible where heroes from Joseph to David tend to be a bit girly. In studying the clues of Jesus' gender presentation, we don't see that he's too manly. As Ayada, the second Spencer notes, Jesus never uses the Greek masculine term anner, male for self-description. Jesus always uses the generic or inclusive term anthropos, human. He calls himself the son of man. In Hebrew, the phrase simply means a human being, notes Walter Wink. Four, Jesus is seen as marriageable. For us in church, Jesus being divine meant he was not at all sexual. 
That isn't what we find in the text. His marriageability might be a subtext of his chat with his mother at the Pano wedding in John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. The exact meaning is opaque. But early opaque. But early Christian tradition sees the Bible. I'm sorry. But early Christian tradition sees the bride as Jesus' sister. With the last daughter married off, he's married basically turning to Jesus and saying, Hey, it is is it your turn? Is it your turn? It's your turn, son. It's really your turn. Not long after Jesus meets a woman in Samaria, as many scholars have recognized from the ancient Jewish perspective, the Samaritan woman looks especially like a potential bride. Notes Brant Brant Petra and Jesus the bridegroom. The setting is a clue. This is Jacob's Well, the Bible's great singles bar. Colin Carmichael notes more clues. Jesus is alone with her in one indication that we're meant to focus on the sexual nature of the encounter is a later reflection of the disciples that they quote-unquote marvel that he talked with the woman, John chapter 4, verse 17. By Jesus dancing, and I was throwing a little dance in his mind, if you were married. Otherwise, not so much. Come to find out, the Messiah was a bit of a party boy. Look at him. A glutton in a trunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, so festive in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, also in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. And he dances. He would at the Cana wedding and dance in gender incongruous sources. How Eon thinks it's unlikely that mixed dancing ever occurred. Yet it is equally suggested that dancing had highly sexual overtones to it. It appears from all these traditions that women dance for men and men dance for women. How would we imagine Jesus dancing? As Eon notes, when men dance, they continually lift up and down, while women danced in circles. Dancing is a regular theme in the Bible and always positive. Jesus speaks of it in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Yes, disciples dance in a circle around them in a scene included in the so-called Acts of John. Jesus says, everybody better join in. Whoso death does not, knoweth not what cometh to pass. Six, there's more Jesus in the four Gospels. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1, we seem to have a reference of writers of the Gospels, remarks by Jesus to circulate other sources. He has new remarks in alternate manuscripts of the Bible, like the Mosaic Codex. He is quoting an early Christian sermon on his second Quinnian. For the Lord himself, when he was asked by someone when his kingdom was, was going to come, said, When the two shall be one, and the outside like the inside, the male female, neither male nor female, chapter 12, verse 2. Variations of this remark are found in right of other texts, including the Gospel of Thomas. It's not so clear such sources are disconnected from the canon. Note the Apostle Paul using similar language in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, with his no male or female talk that many Christians don't like very much. For a glimpse of a broader canon, try how Passings, a new New Testament reading the early Christian text includes an essay. I didn't even I didn't even recognize that form of Christianity. And I'd been to church a lot. Those were the new remarks and ultimate manuscripts of the Bible. I just have to say that again for emphasis. Number seven. 
Jesus travels with women disciples. Back in church, early we realized that Jesus is surrounded by women. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, women like Joanna, Susanna, and many others were helping to support them out of their own means. As Rob Bell writes, this movement started with women only being fully empowered participants, but also bankrolling the work. His male disciples flee the crucifixion, but many women come, as in Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 through 56. As Larry Parcato notes, at finding many women at the crucifixion, the reader retroactively searches them into the whole preceding account of Jesus' activities. And Johnny e. Taylor notes the curious wording of Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Calling the twelve men, he began to send them out two by two. When Noah lands animals to the ark, by two chapter six, verse twenty-one, this seems to me the disciples were in pairs. As God is male and female in the Bible, in Genesis song, we might expect them to be represented by a pairing of a man and woman. Eight. Jesus talks about his divine mother. Jesus talks about his divine father a lot, but it's possible he talks about his mom as well. The first gospel to be written was in Hebrew, and known by Bible scholars the Hebrew gospel is a lost text recorded by early Christian writers. A few times the Holy Spirit is here called his mother. That's not the view of traditional Christianity, but in the gospels it's not clear. And Island is when the pronouns refer to the Holy Spirit in the original Hebrew, Hebrew language of scripture is she, and the pronoun used to refer to the Holy Spirit in the Greek is it. In the English language, people choose to substitute she and it with the English pronoun he. Nemi Hadad knows the Holy Spirit in Hebrew is feminine, Ra in Greek neuter. It's frequently associated with the birthing process. John chapter 3, verse 5, John chapter 1, verse 13, verse John chapter 4, verse 7, John chapter 5, verse and verse 1, John chapter 4, verse No, I'm sorry. First John chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter and uh, Verses 4 and 18. The birthing process sorts of, sort of looks maternal. 9. Jesus was cool with the LGBT by bus crowd. In the ancient world, bisexuality seems to have been enormous. John Boswell had to remind Christians in his 1980 book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. That created a new possibility that the Bible might have been talking about same-sex situations as ordinary. Like in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, a Roman centurion asks Jesus to kill a male slave with whom he has a touching relationship. Jesus is happy to help. See, Eric Kopp makes historical Jesus and the slave of the centurion. We might have to reread Jesus' like and encouraging a free willing approach to gender. He does encourage his disciples to be like eunuchs who are known for being fabulous. As John David Hester documents his units in the coaching of Jesus, these were people who, as an ancient Jewish writer said dismissively, were hybrids of man and woman continually strutting about. Good Christian advice? Strut. 10. Jesus was probably raped. When captured by the Roman soldiers, Jesus is subjected to horrific abuse. In a famous and very upsetting 1999 paper, Crucifixion, State, Care, and Sexual Abuse, David Tomes documents that this likely included rape with clues like the Gospels using the regular biblical word for rape translated mockery. Matthew chapter 27, verse 29 and 31, Mark chapter 15, verse 20, Luke chapter 22, verse 36. As he writes, both Gospels explicitly said that it was the whole cohort sphere of Roman soldiers between 600 and 1,000 men 
that was assembled together to witness and participate in the mockery. In a follow-up paper, hashtag MeTooJesus, naming Jesus a victim of sexual abuse, Tone points to a compelling suggestion. As a victim of sex abuse, Jesus seems to speak to every situation and creates the grounds for Christian love and healing to counter every evil thing in this world. I know that was heavy towards the end, but... It had to be, so people can really understand that it's important to have historical research attached to scripture. Ooh. I had to do it. It was important for me to do it, and um, I'm not ashamed of that. makes me appreciate Jesus as a fully human being that much more. Um, this Okay, let me get to another thing at hand. I'm going to just read. The historical Jesus and the slave centurion, how the themes of slavery, sexuality, military service intersects in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Eric Kaufman, author. Um, the historical Jesus and the slave centurion, how the themes of slavery, sexuality, military service intersects in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to 13. Eric Kaufman, author again, Dr. Kathleen Corley, religious studies and anthropology faculty advisor. Eric Kaufman graduated from uh, UW Oshkosh in December 2007 with a degree in religious studies and anthropology. His research began his essay, Dr. Kathleen Corley's Jesus and the Gospels course during the fall semester 2006. They later explained the project with the student slash faculty collaborative research program. Eric was pleased that he could combine his interest in historical Jesus research and lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender studies into his project. He was attending Chicago Theological Seminary in fall 2008 to pursue a master's degree in divinity and art and ordination in the United Church of Christ. Dr. Kathleen Corley studied religious studies in English at Westmont College Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. She includes both a master's degree and a PhD in religion at the Claremont. Graduate school. She's a member of the North American Association for the Study of Religion and National Know Jesus Seminar. At E.W. Oclaw, she teaches New Testament Christianity, Women and Religion, the Bible, and Current Events. She's in the Gospels, Women in the New Testament, and Gnosticism. Her books include Private Women, Public Mirrors, 1993, Women, Historical Jesus, Fenness, Myths, and Christian Origins, 1993. Abstract. When the identity of the slave in the Gospel narrative of the healing of the centurion slave was studied through historical critical research, the written earlier oral tradition of the story indicates the miraculous act of shooting the historical Jesus. Also, by exploring the slave's identity as a slave, same-sex love interest in military recruit in the first century CE, implications thereof, the author concludes that the historical Jesus understood the sexual relationship between the centurion and slave and healed the latter based on his based on the faith of the former. Jesus never spoke negatively about homosexuality, never offered sociological or theological um, 
discourse pertaining thereto. Introduction is due to historical critical research. Very few scholars have made explicit attempt to discuss the topic of sexuality, much less homosexuality. Commonly, Christian faith communities adhering to strict biblical authority view sexuality, question homosexuality in a negative light. However, positive biblical references to both sexuality and same-sex love are often misunderstood through the hetero through the heteropatriarchal lens most often used to read, teach, and understand the Bible. I drew upon the dual concept of hetero patriarchy to note the reality that historically the Bible has been written, edited, interpreted mostly by heterosexual males. Consequently, the biblical worldview is, is fraught with androcentrism and a complete lack of the modern notion of sexual orientation. One of these misunderstood stories is that of the disentailing of the centurion slave found in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. Most of the previous scholars regarding the story has standardized as androcentric assumption that the centurion loved the slave of the father as a son. Instead, my research offers a realistic possibility that the centurion and slave were in a sexual relationship. By examining the prevailing social contracts of slavery, sexuality, and military services, we can better understand the true circumstance of this story and its meaning for the historical Jesus. The text of Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13 is a Pre-recope, that is, a specific selection within a broader section of the Bible. The word pericope is used here to isolate the story of the healing of the centurion slave from the rest of the stories in the chapter, consisting only of verses 5 to 13 of chapter 8. Preference is given to the word pericope over story because the latter often calls to mind fictional stories such as myth or fable, while the former allows the text to understand it's historical. The pericope of the healing of the centurion slave centers on three characters. Jesus the, centi- Jesus the centurion and a slave belonging to the centurion. As the centurion understood Jesus as a worker of miracles, he did not know whether or not the centurion valued Jesus as a faith leader, but he believed in Jesus' abilities enough to ask him to heal his slave. The centurion's title notes that he was an officer in the Roman army charged with overseeing a legion of 100 men. The slave in his pericope is denoted using the Greek word pious and is a slave within the centurion's household. Yet the meaning of the word pious is much more complex than simply slave. So in order to do justice to the identity of the pious in this pericope and shed light on his true identity, I will provide evidence for the historical nature of the pericope and then outline the historical circum and then outline the cultural circumstances in which this pious lived. The first step towards substantiating that a pericope is authentic historical Jesus is to return to its earliest sources. Since we do not have written sources from Jesus himself, we must rely on the secondary accounts of Jesus' life and ministry as recorded in the Gospels. Furthermore, since biblical gospels were not written during Jesus' lifetime, Muslim Church of Pericope had a strong tradition within the oral period, 30 to 50 CE. The spirit greatly agreed to Jesus' ministry, ending with the crucifixion around 30 CE. In the earliest written gospels that preserved the Pericope, Jesus healing the centurion and slain. The modern biblical canon preserves this pericope in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, both written after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 CE. Funk, Scott, and Butts, 1988, pages 12 to 13, and John Brennan, approximately 100 CE. Witherington, 1995, 828, Kaiser, 1992, pages 918 to 999. Through 919, I'm sorry, 919 to 919. Out of the Gospel can assign source are the predecessors of the canonical Gospels and early sources of the pericope. Both archetypes written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 CE Bunks, Scotton, Plus, 
quite unlike the synopsis. Synopsis. This doctor characteristically refers to miracles performed by Jesus' son, includes Simeon, demonstrations of his messiahship, even his divinity. The author of John would have derived this use from a distinctive narrative source, the science of KJT. The gospel is a hypothetical document considered to be a written source that accounts for direct literary parallelism between the gospels of Matthew and Luke that are not found in Mark, Bach, and Burke 2000. The gospels of Matthew and Luke were authored contemporaneously, but neither author had knowledge of the other's work. Scholars agree that the author of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke used the Gospel of Mark as a source, which accounts for only some of the parallelism between them. Current scholarship agrees that the common early source Gospel Q accounts for the parallels between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke not found in Mark. Klappenberg, et al., 1990, page 7. The parallels between Matthew's and Luke's versions of the paracope of Jesus healing and centurion's pious are striking. Jesus was, at, Jesus was in Capernaum in Galilee. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5, Luke chapter 7 verse 1. A Roman centurion was the petitioner. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5, Luke chapter 7 verse 2. The centurion asked for Jesus for his highest. P-A-I-S. Matthew chapter 8 verse 8, Luke chapter 7 verse 7. The centurion recognized his hierarchical inferiority to Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 verse 8, Luke chapter 7 verse 6. The centurion said that Jesus' word along with the fact cure. Matthew chapter 8 verse 8, Luke chapter 7 verse 7. The centurion offered a short discourse naming parallels between his authority and that of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, Luke chapter 7, verse 8. Jesus listened to and was amazed by the faith of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Luke chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus addressed the crowd in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Luke chapter 7, verse 9. The effector was healed at a distance in Matthew chapter 8, verse 13, Luke chapter 7, verse 10. This parallel suggests that Matthew and Luke used the gospel as a source apart from their more well-known common source, the Gospel of Mark. Furthermore, since both Matthew and Luke preserve his periscope in the constant inconsistent use of the word pious to refer to the type of person, all likelihood the gospel he also included this periscope using the word pious. P-A-I-S. Pious. Let me just say pious. A, re- a, re- a reconstruction of the key by Robson, Hoffman, and Kloppenberg now the two confirms its assertion. Pages 9. Pages 90-91, so not only does P preserve Pius, but it is an early source that, pre- that predates the canonical Gospels, bringing us one step closer to Jesus' lifetime. The date commonly associated with the Gospel is clearly around 50-70 CE. Funk Hoover in the Jesus Seminar, 1993, page 18, Funk in the Jesus Seminar, 1998, page 8, Kloppenberg, that's all 1990, page 5. What P is probably more accurate because it's written closer to when the actual event happened, closer to Jesus' lifetime, than the other Gospels. As mentioned earlier, the gospel is not the only is not the only early source of the pericope that preserves this pericope with the word pious. The other early source where this pericope can be found in the sign source that, like key, is not preserved in its original form in the modern biblical canon. Fortna, Fortna, 1998, the sign source preserves this pericope just as it appears in the Gospel of John, using the Greek word hunios, the English word sun, in and um Verses 46 through 47. Observe the word pay the unidentifiable of the word pass on the lips of the Roman official. Verses 49, pass in verse 51, page 59. Fortner bases conclusion on the assertion that the verbatim text of the sign source can be lifted directly from the Gospel of John, page 7. John's reputation as a creative editor suggests a different conclusion based on his attention to Jesus' miraculous acts proof that he's the Son of God.
As mentioned before, the Gospel of John preserves a version of Jesus healing the same slave with several variations compared to the paracope found in the Gospel of Hugh. The Gospel of John holds that the effective person was a quote-unquote son of a Roman elected officer, not a centurion, that Jesus was in Cana, not Capernaum. The author of John... Okay, in the Gospel of John, using the Greek word kulios, the English word son, in VSS um, verses 46 and 47, but prefer, pre preserving the word padion, a diminutive of the word paeus, on the lips of the Roman official, verse 49, and paeus in verses 51, page 59. Fortnite bases the conclusion on the assertion that the verbatim text of the sign source can be looked at directly from the Gospel of John, page 7. John's reputation as a creative editor suggests a different conclusion based on the thinking Jesus and miraculous acts of the Son of God. As mentioned before, the Gospel of John preserves a version of Jesus healing a centurion slave, but with several variations compared to the precipice the paracope found in the Gospel of The Gospel of John holds that the effective person was a son of a Roman elective. Officer, not a centurion, that Jesus was in Canaan, not Capernaum. The author of John also posed a discussion of authority in Key Luke chapter 7, verse 8, with Jesus proclaimed, Much as he signs and wonders will not believe, go, your son Julius will, will live. John chapter 4, verse 15. Thus, the author of the Gospel of John shifts the focus away from the subversion of Jesus' personal faith to a centurion, a Gentile or non Jewish person, and his focus on the act itself. Further, the author of John showed the officer's faith. The officer believed only after he was told by his household that his son recovered, and he linked the time of recovery with the exact time Jesus spoke to cure. Consequently, the version of John does not have Jesus affecting the cure based on the faith of the officer. Instead, he has the officer gaining faith after seeing Jesus' miracle work. It is likely that the author's attempt to remove all subversiveness from his prayer cup also motivated him to change Paeus in verses 46 to 47 to Hugo in order to remove evidence of sexual relationship. The redaction of signs sourced by the author John suggested that faith in Jesus is inspired by proof positive signs and further illustrates the intent of the author John using miracles alone to prove Jesus as the Messiah. Fortner, 1988, page 8. Melania and Robert, 1999, page 65. This theory is widely accepted by scholars, and I agree. The intention of the author of John is not preserved in the book of Jesus. It's probably the signs was like its early parallel source, key preserved was past and who was in such form. A paracope must be linked to the oral period 30 to 50 CE in order to be considered true to the historical Jesus. Because the oral period, because the oral period did not end one day, and the later period would be the next. Scholars conclude that sayings are parables that are attested to of the sources are older than the sources in which they are embedded. Funk, F-U-N-K, XL993, page, two, page 26. Consequently, because the gospel key on the sign source of both early sources of the paracope and the use of the word chaos, one could conclude that they both originate from a strong early oral tradition. The discussion of the evidence about the entity of the chaos raises even more complex issues. Popular research on identity of the past, each author is reluctant to provide a complete and, and, and un, un, 
ambiguous definition of the past. Definition of the word past include boy, girl, child, son, daughter, slave, handsome, young man, and beloved. Over 1978, page 16, quarter 1993, page 66, Genesis, New York, pages 42 to 47. How many authors argue for one over the other? My research found a much more intricate nuance identity for this past that does not depend on just one aspect of the persona. Like English language, every now and every now and Greek has a gender. This signifies a definite article preceding the word. It explains why the word "ps" can have both masculine and feminine meanings. The Greek article "ho" (ho) is used to indicate the masculine appears in the Greek text of the New Testament to refer to the affected person. Thus, the gender of the "ps" and the variations of the paracos is undisputed. Classes argue that slave is a definition of possibility for "ps." Yet, more convincing evidence indicates that the "ps" in this paracos was probably a slave. The author of the Gospel of James word pays the word dolios, a Greek word that means simply slave, to remove any doubt about the to remove any doubt about the identity of the payas as a slave. Further contextual proof is found within and outside the Bible, considered societal customs in the first century of the Roman Empire in which Jesus lived. The Roman Empire was structured as a strict social hierarchy that influenced life at every level. The hierarchy could be visualized as a triangle forcing citizens of the Roman Empire to conformity within a power structure to help freeborn male Roman citizens at its apex with freeborn women and children placed below and the underclass and slaves at the very bottom. Boswell, 1980, page 74, Howard and Skinner, 1997, page 41. Those at the top of the hierarchy, freeborn Roman slaves directed their power against those below them. Women, children, and slaves, both male and female. The only action that appeared to challenge the hierarchy was viewed negatively. First, is a male who abandoned his masculine role adopted that of a Female was seen as surrendering power for, for passivity. Torture scene, 93, page 184. For a slave, every aspect of person, even sexuality, was controlled through ownership. Many of Jesus' saying revealed that he understood this hierarchy as part of his daily life within the Roman Empire. Many scholars explain that Jesus used the subversion of everyday ideas to challenge his audience's point of view and to inspire them to employ critical thinking in their everyday lives. Corley confirmed Jesus' interest in his parables to challenge his hearers to consider slaves slash master relations. Page 65, that was 1993, the year was published. Glancy corroborates this view. Because so many of Jesus' sayings preserved the Luke and Matthew featured the figure of the slave, they create the impression that Jesus' audience was as familiar with the world of slaveholding and enslavement as with the worlds of farming and fishing, published 2006, page 107. The effects of the common art attitude towards slaves even permeate the colloquial language of the times, specifically regarding the word payas. Slave owners use the word payas in everyday language to refer to their slaves and refer to their slaves as supporting status, status within the household. Glancy, 2006, page 24. Renee, 1987, page 61. This is one possible explanation for the satirian's use of the word pass referred to the ill male in his household. Another reason stems from the existing Roman law that applied to centurion because of his rank in the Roman military. Jennings and Leo verify that it is well known among classes that around 13 BCE, Augustus had legally banned soldiers below the ranks of senatorial and equestrian officers from marrying that these bans lifted either temporarily permanently by Septimus Severus around 197 CE, uh, 2004, page 47. As such a centurion, I have had the opportunity to have children unless he did it on the sly, meaning man. 
why would there be so much confusion about the American if the Pais was simply a son in the Greek word Julios? Thus, the change made by the author John's Gospel from the word Pais to the word Julios is a possible error. Like almost every householder in the Roman Empire, military officials like the Centurion commonly employed slaves and households to take care of the day-to-day housework. Jesus would have understood this aspect of the role of the Pais in the Centurion's household because he would have known that the Centurion was not allowed to marry and thus had no wife or children to maintain the household. Furthermore, simple childhood does not explain the disciples' reaction to the paideia, the Greek plural of paeus in the Gospel of Mark. What characteristic other than slavery would inspire the disciples to repeat Jesus' blessing of the paideia in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Corinthians chapter 93, page 66? Here, the word paideia is often translated as children, yet why would the disciples be upset that Jesus was blessing children? Paul well, explain that in the next verses, Mark chapter 10, verse 14, verses 14 to 15, Jesus hears are told to identify themselves as being slaves or those in positions of servitude. In fact, the reign of God belongs especially to them. Public Sanitine 3, page, page 66. This made more sense within the context of the chapter and also fit with Jesus' overall style of subverting normal assumptions by saying that the kingdom of God belongs to slaves, those at the very bottom. Of the social hierarchy. The disciples found this being different since they also lived within the hierarchy and afforded more privileges to slaves. The evidence here shows that the Paeus is someone other than the son and that Jesus would have rightly understood the slavery aspect of the identity of the Paeus, but further ev- evidence reveals that he was also more than just a slave. While the Paeus in the periscope in question was a male slave, another facet of the meaning of the word Paeus could be applied to his identity. The word Paeus was also used as a diminutive that applies in fe- affection. Example, a pet name to refer to the younger or more youthful partner in a homosexual relationship. Boswell, 1980, was the year it was published, page 29 through 30. Dover, 1978, year it was published, page 16. Gagnon, year it was published, 1002, page 163. James and Leo, 2004, was the year it came out, page 472. In this, in this way, the Centurion was also likely to wear pants with respect to a sexual relationship with a male slave. Scholars overwhelmingly agree that the word pants was used in Greek language as a synonym for the word eromenos, a Greek, a Greek word meaning the boy you love, and specifically denoting a homosexual relationship. Dover, 1978, page 16, Gagas, page 162, Jennings and Leo, Jennings and Leo, 2004, pages 472 to 473, Nissen in 1998, page 58. This idea appears in numerous ancient sources, including Plato's Symposium, 385 BC, in which the author acknowledges the positive morality of a homosexual relationship, wherein the beloved Greek Paris is named wise and virtuous by the more mature lover in Greek Erastus. Nissen in 1998, page 59, also appears in the history of the Hello. Ponesian War, 433 through 411 BC, in which the Thucydides writes of the homosexual relationship between Pascinaeus and Ag- Agathon, using the word to Agathon and against Timarchus, 845 BC, in which Aeschines discusses Timarchus' reputation for taking advantage of the older men with whom he had relationships, using the word Paris, referring to Timarchus. Furthermore, Boswell notes that an official Roman document, Septuagint CE, mentions a pass in a specific homosexual context. 1980, page 30. Even there's a large span between the dates of these documents, there's no change due to the word pass to refer to a man's same sex devotee. 
Additionally, the life mission of Jesus falls in the time period in which the word payas was used in such a way especially that Jesus would have known this word as synonymous with the words male lover. Moreover, the Gospel of Matthew uses the word tolos apart from its use of the word payas to refer to slaves. And the word theos, apart from the word payas to mean son. Thus, these words are not synonymous for Matthew. Genesis and Leo, 2004, page 471-472. As I alluded to earlier, each of the Gospels that preserve a version of the periscope, Matthew, Luke, and John preserve the word payas in the midst of the centurion slash officer. Therefore, it's not inconsistent to suggest that Jesus heard the centurion utter, Say the word of my youthful male lover will be healed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, Luke chapter 7, verse 7. The assertion that Paeus is the same sex love entered the centurion is further corroborated by the use of the word Paeus in the lexicon of Romnami. Biblical asserts that adult males are still classified as boys by Roman writers when they are serving in the Roman army. And that this alludes to youthful beauty rather than chronological minority in 1985 The serious Paeus may have been preparing to serve behind, beside his master in the Roman army. While a man must be free to serve the Roman military, um, Fitzgerald, 2000, page 4, the centurion may as well have chosen a trusted, physically fit, attractive male slave with plans to free him, allowing master and freed slave to fight side by side in battle. Strong evidence confirms the Roman army used pederastic relationships to their benefit in organizations and legions of soldiers. In his work from the first century CE concerning the life of a Roman military captain, Palapidas, Plutarch described the sacred band of love's Roman battalion composed of homosexual partners. The sacred band of 300 chosen men composed of young men attached to each other by personal affection, a band cemented by friendship grounded upon love, is never to be broken and invincible since the lover is ashamed to be based in sight of their beloved and the beloved before their lovers willingly rush into danger for the grief of one another. 2001, page 396, uh, Basel 995, pages um, 6465, Greenberg 1988, pages 110-316. In this way, the less experienced soldier that passed to Matthew would model himself as the more experienced soldier to Centurion Matthew to fight the enemy with bravery. Nicinian, that's 38 to, you know, pages 58. Furthermore, since intimacy, the slave master would eventually be freedom for the slave. Also, 1982, I know, pages 74. Then, yay, 1987, uh, page 57, Fitzgerald, 2000, page 13. The positive treatment of slaves would reflect positively on their master, Fitzgerald, page 5. This positive thrust of the tales of the slave in Centennial's household, who at some point was chosen by the Centennial as a lover in order to be later free to fight beside him in the Roman army. The modern understanding of pederastic relationship between a man and a boy evokes ideas of inappropriate contact between an adult and a child. Interestingly, the ancient practice of pederasty was more complex than our modern ide ideology would let us believe. According to Jennings, Paeus is one of the two roots that together form the word pederasty. The other root is erastes from the Greek word eros, which means lover. The term pederasty means lover abuse, which there was a technical term for male homosexual relationships in the Hellenistic world, 2003, page 133. However, the Paeus as a lover, just like the Paeus as a slave, referred to as such even when he was an adult, displaying adult characteristics, facial hair, height, as examples. 
The opening at 78, page 85, on Instagram, page 24. Furthermore, Bible states, the majority of instances, homosexual relations are described in terms between fully grown persons, and no disparity in ages implied or stated, citing extensive lists of ancient works by authors, including Plutarchus, Clement of Alexandria, 1980, uh, page 30. Genesis, Greece, stating, in the Hellenistic world, despite literal connotation of boy, the beloved referred to in this way would not normally have been a minor. Pages 133-134. Scholars even found that some pederastic relations were not temporary bonds, but lasted through adulthood. Nessinian, 1988, page 67. Scroggs, 1983, page 130-139. Representarians, Paris may have been only slightly slightly younger than himself or even appear with the use of the word pay referring to his inferior social status as a slave. Finally, with the lawful ban on marriage looming over the centurion, his relationship with the Paeus was likely not a short-term tryst, but a valuable solution to his lack of mutual affection and vulnerability in the battlefield. My research has shown that Jesus' miraculous healing of centurion slaves was grounded in historical fact that the slave was not a son or just a slave of centurion, but a sexual partner, and that Jesus healed this slave with a full understanding that he was in a full, that he was in a physical relationship with his master, the centurion. So what final the implications of Jesus healing the centurion is past? First, this periscope is true to the historical Jesus, which I concluded by tracing the periscope from the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John through their earlier sources, the Gospel of Peter, and the Sign sources. Thus, this then implies the existence of the oral traditions of the prayer code dating back to Jesus' lifetime. Thus, it is implicit that the historical Jesus healed the male pairs of Roman army officials. Second, as revealed by the evidence for the social cultural context of the first century Roman Empire, Jesus would have understood that the pairs was a slave. Thus, this prayer code can be seen as yet another example of Jesus' empathy toward those in the lowest of the social order and in positions of servitude to the extent that their position is especially blessed by Jesus' ministry. Um, third, the social cultural context of Inicus, the historical Jesus probably hit the centurion's face with the understanding that the two were involved in a deeply affectionate relationship that likely included sexual relations between the two males and engaged in a commentary, positive or negative, social or theological. If anything, Jesus' impetus for healing the pious was based on centurion's faith. Key, Luke 7, chapter 7, verse 9. The last conclusion causes the doubt the assertion by modern Christian conservatives that homosexual acts are inherently sinful. This paracope sheds light on a different point of view. If there's likelihood that Jesus held the slaves based solely on the faith of the centurion, even with knowledge of their possible physical relationship. Not only that, but he performed a miracle without even acknowledging their relationship. In my opinion, this actually shows that Jesus did not disapprove of their bond. In fact, we have no opinion of same-sex relations from either the Jesus of history or the Christ of faith. If Jesus did have a strong opinion regarding the relationship between the centurion and the slave boy, this would have been the prime opportunity for him to assert it. Was this a missed opportunity to condemn homosexuality or merely a non-judgmental miracle of faith? Or was homosexuality a non-issue for Jesus? I conclude that if Jesus did have a strong opinion about homosexuality, it would have been recorded and would have appeared on modern gospels. If anything, this research has at least created a dialogue often with a different interpretation of the paracope. Um, so, let's share more. 
did Jesus flirt? There are some things that we don't imagine Jesus doing. Even though technically the church holds to the doctrine of what is called in the incarnation, that is, Jesus was completely fully human, still we don't think or even like to think of Jesus engaged in some activity that still we don't think or even like to think of Jesus engaged in some activities that are just part of every day for the rest of us. Actually, I like to think of Jesus engaging in some activities that are just part of every day for, for me. I think it and I like to think it. There's nothing particularly edifying for instance, imagine Jesus with a sore back. Of course he had a sore back, not just on the cross, but before the cross. Doesn't bother me at all. Or getting up in the morning and shaving. Of course he shaves. I mean, he's a health conscious person. If you like you like to walk around, keep himself in shape, why would personal hygiene be excluded from his health consciousness? But Jesus was fully human. Now that is true. One area no one touches, if he pardoned the pun, is a part of being human that's actually quite important, our sexual identities. Before I go further, I, yes, Jesus was completely and fully human, absolutely. If Jesus was fully human, then he had a sexual identity and sexual feelings. Yes, Jesus had a sexual identity, and yes, Jesus had sexual feelings. Yes, Jesus had sexual urges. Damn it, I said it. They might have been very important in his life or less important, we don't know. Oh, I know it's very important in his life, come on. The, that eroticism within us is extremely emergency. It's an extreme emergency in our heads, yes. But every human has them, yes, yes, every human has them. No theologian and certainly no, part, part, and no, certainly no pastor wants to keep their job or ever discuss this. I've seen a couple of treatments, but mostly from fringe thinkers and crackpots. So I would like to say right from the beginning that I will, for the most part, be a coward on this subject, too. Not me. Yes, my point is not to talk about Jesus as a fully sexual being. That's the author saying that? Oh, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to put my two cents in everything. Jesus is a fully sexual being. Hallelujah. And I don't mean safe him from it. I mean, let's preserve Jesus's sexual beingness 100%. But it is to at least indicate something that perhaps may have been missing from some discussion of the so-called woman at the well story. According to John's account, Jesus traveled on his way to Galilee and goes to Samaria. He stops at Jacob's door and the disciples go off to find something to eat, leaving him alone. A woman comes out enough at noon to fetch water. It is a man and a woman alone, a Samaritan and a Jew. There are charged lines of ethnicity and politics and theology here all at once as the discussion soon points out. There are also charged lines of gender. Jesus is the first to cross the line, but then he seems to be good at that. Instead of just ignoring her, he says, give me a drink. Not so much as a please either. So Shawama doesn't just say yes or no, although she should have. Right from the beginning, we see that this Samaritan is no ordinary individual. Now, how is it, she asks, you can almost see her one hand on her hip, her tone of voice slightly accusing. How is it that you or you can ask that of me as American? How dare you? Like some people would say, no respect at all. Jesus then says, if you knew the gift of God, the who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him when he would have been giving you living water. And the woman answered him back, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I think what's going on in the gospel this morning is actually a flirtation of sorts. I agree. Maybe not overly sexual. If it was overly sexual, I'm cool with that. 
Although this between a man and a woman, but at the very least a verbal flirtation. Okay, okay, I'll get to off of that. Okay. Verbal flirtation. I, I like verbal flirtations. I like non-verbal flirtations. I'm a flirtatious person. And, and consensually, enthusiastically, mutually speaking. But at the very least, a verbal flirtation in the sense that each of them is gently teasing the other, each enjoying the matching of wits. That's fun for me. Gently teasing and wit, wit smashing. Ah, oh, this is so exciting. For all the interesting people Jesus meets in John, I think this individual is the most interesting. And that's part of why this story is there in the gospel. There's a word game. I love word games. A kind of he said, she said, yay. The Samaritan woman starts by using literal meaning of words, and Jesus starts by using a symbolic meaning. And then, just when you realize what they're doing, they both switch to the opposite. It takes two people to do that and to enjoy it. It takes two to tango. I can almost imagine Jesus smiles at the joke when the woman talks to him, her smiling back and short. Maybe these two liked each other. Yes, of course they did. And I like that they liked each other. Give me some water, said Jesus. Put it up. He wants the wet liquid. You're a Jew, she answered. Theological. She's stalling. If only you knew I'd give you living water, he says. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, we're not exactly talking about H2O anymore. Give me some of that living water that ends thirst, says the woman. And I won't need to haul it up the hill. Making fun of Jesus and slipping back and forth is little water, 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 and water. But not the same meaning each time. Literal. Figurative, symbolic, real, lots of the double entendres that are characteristic of flirting, and all in only a couple of verses. Yeehaw! Jesus and the woman at the well weren't talking to each other, they were on purpose talking past each other. Having a little fun in a really serious way. And I think that the spiritual woman was so low on the status ladder that the disciples would even talk to her if she was dumb, was dumb like a fox once he understands Jesus. <laughs> but he also knew what he was up against, and, and as did she. That's the reason that despite all the intention was understanding, there's also more real dialogue in this encounter than, than in many that, that Jesus has supposedly more important people in, that I put in quotation. Flirting with Jesus is not something you would normally think of as what pious people should do. Good Christians pray, we worship, we learn from, we study, but flirt with Jesus, don't we? And it's purely negative since don't we sometimes perfectly ignore the plain truth of what we hear while pretending to understand? Like the one with the well talking about water when the Bible talks about justice or about our attitude to the outcast and the marginalized. Sometimes it seems if we're only listening enough to hear the words and not get the real meaning behind them. We ignore what we don't want to hear. We're coquettish. We wake at the heart teachings too much. But that's negative sense. I believe that the flirtation there was one between Jesus and the rest of the world was much more good natured than that. Quite natural, perhaps there too. We have something to learn. Christians are so earnest. If God created a sense of humor, it's to be used, and maybe especially in serious situations. We need, sometimes, to take what the Bible says as more of a sense of humor. We can look at the situations we get ourselves stuck in and say, now that's funny. Or we can show up by our own sense of self-irony that we're, that what, that we know are just not as important as all that. Eventually, at the end of the debate or the flirtation, whatever it is, Jesus himself brings on the point, and this is how he does it. He comes clean about who he really is. In other words, how do we really know, how do we really finally know what words signify. We know in relationships, as soon as the Samaritan woman was smart, she was, gave up her defenses, but met Jesus, and Jesus also gave up his workplace, built himself, that was it. 
Words take on meaning in relationships. Point of conversation comes serious as a testing of trust and intimacy. People are funny. We can pretend to speak the whole truth to each other and miss the point completely. Or like Jesus and the one as well, we can barter with each other and have expressions while both know what's going on and what is at stake. Maybe you and I learn how to start our relationship to each other and to God so that we can learn the truth. As Luther once said in different contexts and with and, uh, and under what we hear, maybe we should all be doing a little more of this kind of banter with the truth of the spirit. And as we do, we might find the peace of God which passes all understanding. We then truly keep our hearts and minds a joyful play of love with our maker redeemer with the world God has made for us to walk through. Oh, this is a believer author, but I like believer authors think about the box like this one. And then I like the part where he basically mentioned her private life. You know, you've had you've had many husbands, and the one you're living with now or with now is not your husband. That and basically Jesus said this is the plain truth. And that's when she started becoming an evangelist for Jesus. According to understand that the whole story. He was the first to tell the Samaritans about how Jesus is all that in the back of church, basically. So I I am comfortable with Jesus flirting. I'm I think Jesus had children naturally. Either with Mary Magdalene or that Samaritan woman. Yes, those are my thoughts. And there was another scripture that suggests that Jesus may have been a hunk of a man. Let me read to you this. Yes, I am controversial on purpose. Absolutely. So, let's read this. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Verses 26 through 28. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and dwell there. And the final part is the man is worse than the first. As Jesus saying these things, and one of the crowd raised his voice said, Blessed is the womb that birthed you, and blessed is the breast that nursed you. Tell me, Jesus was smooth with the ladies, and some of that smoothness made him eye candy for many of the women that hip hoppers would call honey dips. Then Jesus replied, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. I'm pretty sure she was turned on by his holy humility and not just his physical stature. Okay. I just I just love thinking outside the box. Um makes me happy. So This is where I'll conclude the episode with. This is my real thoughts, okay? I'm doing an adult dating website business. It'll be sugar baby, sugar parent, casual hookup, dating relationship. And that's all of the explanation with my adult entrepreneurshiping that y'all need to know because there's nothing more to say. Because I said it all. And, um, you know, I love being LGBTQI+. Um, I think, for example, um, I'm into, like, I like men, right? I like deals. Dad, I like the fuck. 
holding energy. I also like um, G-Dilts. Brand that I like the fuck. Um, old men. Old men. And Dilts and G-Dilts are basically hot old their men and hot old men. Plus, I like hot young men. I do. But I also... When I use those words, I mean it kindly, not negatively. For example, I like milk. Mom, I like to fuck. I'm a trail like to fuck, right? Or, you know, cougars, if you will. Mature women. I like them. Middle-aged women. I like them. I also like chills. Grandmother, I like to fuck, right? I also like EYTs. Meaning, young, you know, Attractive young women. When I say attractive or hot, it doesn't mean disparaging. It, it just means that like my fire in terms of inner beauty and outer beauty. That's what I mean. And yes, I like um, would I ever get with, like, let's say a friend, or get with a dad or granddad. Hey, inner beauty, outer beauty, why? Sure, I was have permission, sure. No, I wouldn't do it. Um, that's simple. So, I just like being honest. Um, like, you know, granddad or dad's supposed to be club plus people, then, yeah, of course. Just wanted to clarify that. Now, I like BBWs. I also like keeping men. I like what I like. And, um, my favorite are dark black and black people. So I'm into, when it comes to women, I like dark black and black women. I'm into full figure black women more. When it comes to men, I like dark black and black men. I mean, she's easy, black and If I had my choice, it would be, uh, big, beefy, dark, black skin, black men. And if I had my choice, it would be full figure, dark, black skin, black women. Ah, I just love being real. And, um, I'm pretty Pretty much, I'm pretty much done.